Welcome to The View from the Front. My name is Stan, and this is the August 31st edition. If you are new to the show, let me say as background that I'm a proud moderate and that I covered the news for more than 10 years as a journalist. Before that, I served four years in the Marine Corps on active duty and two years in the Reserve, all of that time in the infantry. In this show, The View from the Front, I primarily do three things every week. First, I work to highlight what our military troops are doing around the world while also covering hotspots and foreign policy news that could affect our country. Secondly, I attempt to unite us and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America. Our division is our country's greatest threat, and I firmly believe two things. Most Americans are good, and more unites us than divides us. Finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode because I want to help encourage you and lift you up. Life is certainly hard, and each one of us needs all the motivation and encouragement and wisdom that we can possibly get. Thanks again for joining us. I really hope you get something from the show. I hope you guys are excited. I know that I am definitely excited. So much to discuss. But there's a bit of potential news about the show that's kind of exciting. So if this works well, and it has worked well in tests, so I've tested it and it works. So hopefully you will be seeing and reading this tomorrow and What I'm talking about is that there is a new artificial intelligence transcription service that will take this podcast and mostly publish it correctly in language that you can read. And that is beyond exciting for me because I've noticed that my audience is essentially, it seems, about 50-50. About half of the people that talk with me by email or comments really love it when I do newsletters. And I love doing newsletters sometimes. I love, I'm obviously a writer, and I love, you know, the creativity of polishing sentences and formatting and inserting photos and all that. But I also kind of do it for my day job, and I kind of write novels on the side, so I do a lot of writing. And sometimes I don't feel like doing newsletters. And so I love doing podcasts. I've talked about that. I've talked about that I've had some speech issues as a kid, so I get super nervous trying to just talk, and yet I feel called to do it. And so sometimes we got to face the things that we fear. And I just, I've always loved podcasts, and so I know like half the audience is podcast audience. And so those folks don't seem to be signed up for the newsletters or the email list. They seem to watch or listen, I'm sorry, on other places like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, other places. But those who get the newsletters, I know are going to be pretty excited if this works, which I think it will. And that is, while they're sitting in the office, if they can't listen to the podcast, I know some people cannot or they're not in a work environment where they can put in earphones or they're you know, just not the person that likes to listen to it while they're driving. Some people love it. I like to listen to podcasts when I'm driving if, if my family's not with me. But I think we have a potential win-win, which is if this works, the transcription should be up. So if you want to read it, it's there. If you've been listening to podcasts, nothing will really change. But for me anyway, as a creator, this is super exciting because now I can make both sides of the house happy. And I can do the podcast but also know that those who mainly get the email and just scan the source notes, and I know there are several of you, if not a lot of you out there that do that, you're going to be happy because hopefully this transcription stuff is really cool. I just got to figure out how to tie the notes in. So, you know, I may not have it down to 
a science the first week, maybe not even the first few weeks, but I think it's going to be pretty cool. So I'm pretty excited about that. So I definitely wanted to mention that as the first announcement. I'm not sure why I said first announcement. That's the only announcement. Now, if you are on the email list and there's, I think there's about 330 of you last I checked. Thank you if you're one of those. But you got a newsletter, the kind of a breaking news newsletter on Monday. Because since the last podcast went out, kind of a lot happened. And if you listened last week, you know I talked about that it seemed like most analysts were kind of 50-50. About half of the folks were convinced that the Ukrainian counteroffensive was a failure or wasn't going to be successful. It's going to keep grinding. Not much would happen. But there were still those on the side that I'm on which still believed something could happen, would happen. Folks like myself who remained optimistic that the that the Russian army could break, could panic, could flee, or something big could happen. So any regular listener knows that I've talked about this ad nauseum for like six or eight weeks now. But since the last podcast went out, things started shifting. And things shifted enough that by Monday, I felt like I needed to put out an update. And things were shifting in the optimistic direction. It began with a column by General Petraeus, Petraeus and a uh, another writer who's uh, an economist. I don't want to totally go through the newsletter again, because I know if you're one of those already on the newsletter, you've already read all this stuff, and you probably don't want to you know, if you're like me, I don't want to hear someone regurgitate something. So I'm just going to mention that go read the newsletter if you haven't, and I'll run through the last six points just really quickly. So General Petraeus believes that things could break the Ukrainians' direction. And I've pointed out six additional interesting things, which is that first, the Ukrainian forces believe they've broken through the most difficult part of the line of the Russian defenses in the south, in the Zaporizhia area, and that they will now be able to advance more quickly. Even General Milley in the United States, he's been skeptical of potential success. He agrees. The other big thing was, all along, and I, fall, I fell into this trap myself, sometimes you just get so into taking one step at a time and measuring where the ground forces are that you don't think about this. But someone, an analyst last week mentioned, and then everyone started realizing, that Ukraine doesn't have to take the entire land bridge in the southern part of the Zaporizhia area in order to cut it off. It only needs to advance about another 7 to 10 kilometers to put the entire east-west supply route within the rocket range of the high Mars or multiple launch rocket systems. So essentially the roads, the railroads, these transportation hubs that have been used to supply the entire Russian army going all the way to the Crimean Peninsula and all of those troops along that land area that Ukraine is trying to push through, they could be at serious risk of being cut off just by long-range artillery fire alone. That is a serious threat because there's only two ways to uh, supply that area. One is the Kerch Bridge. It's been attacked several times. It's a high, you know, high priority target for Ukraine. So you've either got the bridge or you've got these roads and a couple of major railroads, which could easily be attacked by high Mars 
relatively soon. So that's a huge threat for, if you're a Russian general, I don't think you're sleeping real well. I also mentioned as one of the six interesting things that there was a Russian commander who two weeks ago, even before the most recent almost breakthrough or additional gains by the Ukrainians, he suggested that Russia should freeze the war along the current front lines and basically negotiate a peace deal because things weren't going Russia's way and it was about to get uglier. The Institute for the Study of War even commented on that suggestion by this Russian commander and said that doing it, freezing it at this point would only benefit Russia. So clearly things are kind of going against them. Um, The Russians have committed their best reserve forces to try to stop this advance. And the final thing I pointed out was that the Ukrainians seem to be getting better. And I shared this video where it's really just almost impossible to describe how amazing this video is of an artillery strike where they hit this command small command nodule or point pinpoint accuracy using western stuff of course but they literally anticipate where the fleeing troops will run you gotta remember artillery takes about 30 seconds in the air once it's fired to arrive and so they take a shot hit this area and they already have pinpointed where they think the russians will run up this road And they have literally rounds in the air after the first one lands, and they hit where these troops would run. It's unbelievable. It is, you know, war is an ugly, nasty business, but it has become a science. And so you you watch this video, and you're just, you're almost like, I can't even believe that humans have gotten to the point where they could orchestrate such an, an amazing feat of just... You know, engineering brilliance, tactical command brilliance, just everything. And then it's still horrible because lots of Russians die in this. But, you know, it's it's a sad thing, but war happens. And clearly the the Ukrainians are trying to stop all the horrific things that have happened to them. And I hate that this that war has to happen, but wars have been happening for a long time. And they're going to be happening for a long time in the future. But... Just watching that video, I am reminded that the Ukrainians are getting better. And even in some of their initial attempts to bust through the lines that were blunted, they're getting better. Every single day, they're getting better. And you can't watch that video if you have any, just any appreciation for military history. And something I, it's something I love and have studied for my entire life. But if you've studied military history, if you've read about old old battles and flanking maneuvers and there's you know there is a skill to war you can't watch that video and not say wow it's just it's just really something else so if you didn't catch the newsletter it's on the website it's just free to read go to stanormitchell.substack.com and the headline is is russia in more trouble in ukraine than most people know and could time actually be on ukraine's side obviously that's a flipped script Because all along, Russia has always believed time was on its side. Russia always believed that Western support would dry up, that public sentiment would go against the leaders of the West in NATO and in the United States. And that hasn't happened. So thank goodness for that. But it now starts to look like time might actually be on Ukraine's side. Obviously, F-16s will be coming next year. Ukraine continues to modernize and get better. 
Russia continues to struggle. So that's the article. Make sure you check it out if you haven't. Spent a little longer on that than I wanted to, but I said last week, I'm going to try not to stress about how long I'm spending on sections. I'm just going to relax, and we're going to talk and have as good a show as possible. Now, the next thing I wanted to get to actually builds off of the newsletter that I just talked about. One of the things I had always dreamed of is that I would create this community where I could find people like myself who keep up with military matters and were excited to talk about it and almost lived and breathed that kind of stuff, you know, what's happening in the world, military history, etc. The kind of people that you can talk about, hey, in World War II, you remember during Guadalcanal when such and such happened, and they know exactly what you're talking about. They don't look like, you know, deer with headlights, you know, complete ignorance of what you're talking about. They know exactly what you're talking about. And I've kind of built this small community, and after putting out that newsletter... There was just some incredible analysis that was posted as a comment. And I got the... I've, I've corresponded with this gentleman quite a bit the past year or so. And he's a subscriber. And so I, I say, hey, you know, I asked for permission if I could use the name. And so I say, hey, Eric, can I use your name? And if so, can I mention you're in the military? And how much are you comfortable with me saying? Are you comfortable with me using your full name or just your first name? Are you comfortable with uh, mentioning... I knew he was a long-term vet. I knew he was retired. I thought he was like a senior enlisted person. But he gave me permission to use his full name and his rank. And the funny thing is, turns out the guy's a lieutenant colonel, which is way above the pay grade of just a nobody sergeant like myself. And I've been talking to this guy for the past year as if he was just, I I thought maybe, maybe like a master sergeant or like senior enlisted because he just seemed really humble and down to earth. And so I've just talked to him just like he's someone that's been in the trenches just like me. And uh, when he told me what he actually was, a lieutenant colonel, and had done a deployment, a combat tour with uh, in Afghanistan with Enduring Freedom. He's done three tours in Iraqi Freedom. Uh, he's, his MOS is armor as well as intelligence officer, retired, as I said, as lieutenant colonel. It was just like... Oh, I told him, I said, it's going to be awkward now because the whole time I thought this guy was somewhat in my realm, even though like a master sergeant isn't even in, in my realm, really. But I'm so honored that um, he's allowing me to say his name. His name's Eric Karras, retired, 22 years, lieutenant colonel. But I wanted to share his comments. And they're really just, I don't know, if you keep up with this stuff, this is what he says. He said, here are my thoughts. The Russian army of 2023 is not the Red Army of 1943 at Kursk. The Russian army today in its current state in Ukraine is more like the Confederate army at Petersburg and the German army in 1918. So in Petersburg, that's in the Civil War, the Confederate army that was well toward the end and General Grant was just hammering them. There was about an eight-month siege, but there was a lot of fighting along lines. It was really bloody. And, in fact, the casualties were so bad for the North that a lot of people were saying that, you know, General Grant was a butcher and this was just horrific and, you know, maybe we should just have peace with the South. And But after Petersburg, there was a breakout. So eight-month siege, lots of fighting. There's a breakout 
April 1st by Union troops. Literally eight days later, General Lee surrenders April 9th. So he mentions that, and then he says the similar instance is that the German army in 1918, they go on the offensive after the Russian surrender. They seize some territory, but literally months later, World War I is over. And so he says the war is on a knife's edge for the Ukrainian army. And, and then he says, I would certainly like the United States to go through every resource at the problem instead of trickling in material and supplies, and that it's frustrating to him as a soldier observing the problem that the Ukrainian army, the typical Ukrainian army soldier is faced with. He also pointed out something that I had no knowledge of, that the Ukrainian army actually sent military support to Operation Iraqi Freedom. He sent a link to that. I looked it up. It's many hundred troops, and I'll put that link in the source notes depending on how this transcript thing works, but I'll try to make sure I get that link in there. Just a reminder that Ukraine was literally helping the United States at a time when Operation Iraqi Freedom, in case you've slept since then, was not very popular at the beginning, and it wasn't exactly popular midway or toward the end, but Ukraine did support the United States, so I appreciate him bringing that to my attention. But his point is really just... He sums up better using historical analysis, something that I've just been feeling, that I just feel like you just see little things that are happening, little pieces of intel that you will see. For instance, there was a bit of intel that kind of went viral about some Russian soldiers in the southern part near Kherson in the Crimean Peninsula that were literally eating mice. They were struggling and they were talking among themselves, and it got leaked on Telegram. And so you've got Russian soldiers who literally can't even get enough to eat. And so there's just so many little clues that the Russian army is, they are holding together by a thread, a strand of string so thin that it seems to me anyway, it seems clearly to Eric Karras and General Petraeus and others that they could break at any time. They've Many of their soldiers have been on the line for a very long time, like almost a year. Normally, military units in war through long years of history, decades and decades of of history, and really centuries of study of war, if you can get troops off the line, get them a little rest, get them some hot meals, get them some just time to like regroup and put them back fresher, you can keep them going a lot longer. But Russia just really hasn't been able to do this. So they just put these conscripts who have very little training on the front line and they're just leaving them there and these men i think they're almost all men and you haven't seen many russian women on the front but these men are just they're isolated they're scared they're not getting much information leadership in the russian army is just horrible they have almost no nco structure of like corporals and sergeants and their officers are they're not the best leaders. It's a very it's not a lead from the front top situation like it is with US forces and with Western and NATO forces. It's very much a you guys go do this, you do what I say, you don't question my orders, and if any of you run back, we may shoot some of you. It's just a very different philosophy to war. And so Eric Karras is saying what I've been saying. Moving along, I mentioned last week the increased drone attacks inside Russia by Ukraine and how they had destroyed last week one of the bombers that Russia had. What a valuable target that was. 
Things have just gotten even worse for Russia since then, and in fact, recording this on Wednesday, the largest multi-position drone attack happened inside Russia, where probably well over a hundred drones hit multiple places inside Russia, and they damaged at least two uh, large transport aircraft in Russia, possibly as many as four, some social media saying four. The BBC was saying two for sure, but it led to this large fire at this one Russian airbase. But they hit the Moscow, they hit like four or five different sites. It's just really just crazy how effective these drone attacks are inside Russia. It's clear that Russia does not have its air defenses up very well. People have jokingly talked about how poor Russian air defenses are in Ukraine, but it I would, it almost seems like Russian air defenses in Ukraine are better than they are inside Russia. So I'm sure Vladimir Putin is not happy about this. They did retaliate with these massive attacks on Kiev, but Ukrainian air defenses were very strong and destroyed most of the incoming missiles and drone attacks. I saw that two people were killed, but again, Ukraine's air defenses are just so much better than they were, especially with Western Patriot anti-air missiles and other capabilities but Russia's going to have to figure out how to deal with these increasingly common and effective drone attacks inside its own country it can't keep losing planes each week that are parked on the ground and they're having to reposition troops and anti-air around these air bases it's just not a good situation if you're Russia as you're watching Ukraine begin to choke off your gains in inside Ukraine in that southern area of Zaporizhia as we were talking about. So you're worried about the bridge. You're worried about are they in artillery range. You're worried about a breakthrough. And then the whole time on top of that you're worried about you can't even protect. This is the second, at least second repeated instance of airfields being hit inside Russia. I mean that is for any country, having a, an airfield hit is, I mean, is there any target more important than an airfield? I mean, it's, this is embarrassing, but more than embarrassing, strategically, you cannot let your airfields be hit. That is that is, is not a recipe for success. So Russia is going to have to try to figure out a way to counter these. It'd be nice if, if Putin decided that he could just declare victory, give up all this ground, and just pull out. But it's a ugly situation for Russia right now, for sure, inside their own country. While we're talking about these drone attacks inside Russia, it is a good reminder what Max Boot, who's a columnist at the Washington Post, longtime foreign policy analyst, wrote a column, and its headline is, Ukraine is crossing Russia's, quote, red lines, end quote, with impunity. It's a lesson for President Biden. I wanted to read one paragraph from that. And I quote, It seems hard to remember now, but at the beginning of this conflict, the West, and the White House in particular, was desperately worried that attacks inside Russia would cross a, quote, red line, end quote, that would lead Russian President Vladimir Putin to dramatically up the ante perhaps even to employ nuclear weapons. More recent experience suggests that, for all his bluster, Putin is rational enough not to escalate a limited war that he is already losing 
into a wider war with NATO that he cannot possibly win. And then Max Boo goes on to talk about how President Biden needs to get Ukraine, the F-16s, faster, that they need to get the long-range artillery, the ATACMs. We've talked about that a little bit in the past, but there are certain things that Ukraine really needs. The ATACMs, that Army Tactical Missile System, is something that is just incredible. And Max Boot even goes further, and I'm going to share this because this is just from my experience. I've really kept up with journalism for the past 20 plus years. It's what I went to school for. And this is just my view of journalism that I've really, I mean, I literally owned a newspaper for nine years in a small town. I covered a small town before that. I've really kept up with foreign policy. I used to dream of being some big, you know, reporter that eventually had his own column in you know, like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. So I've always kept up, especially with foreign policy stuff. And I want to mention one thing that Max Boot said, because in this long history of mine of at least a solid 20 years of really keeping up with how things work in journalism, you just realize that things sometimes get leaked out there. And it's almost like sometimes the politicians push it or someone in the Pentagon pushes it and you just, it's literally testing the waters. You put it out there and you see what happens. Now, if the columnist is super attacked or if it gets a lot of coverage on TV as just insane or stupid or whatever, then the idea doesn't happen. But if you put it out there and it doesn't really even raise an eyebrow, then it kind of starts to get pushed out a little bit more. And then before long whoever's idea it really was, is actually comfortable enough to begin putting their name behind it. Because the reality is, is most people in Washington, D.C., they get there by being very cautious. If not, eh, cowardly. But you don't make it to the, the heights of power in Washington by being super aggressive and always being out front. That's how you get cut down. And so these people have learned to push things out very easily, very softly, very mildly, and you kind of just test things. In this column, Max Boot mentions three things about the administration's hesitation to provide F-16s to Ukraine. He mentions the long-range ATACMs, those Army tactical missile systems, which would be amazing. They have a lot more range than the uh, MLRS, the Multiple Launch Rocket System rockets. But the third thing he mentions, and I'm only mentioning this because it's the first time I've really seen it in print. Little old Stan was kind of half-throwing this out almost nine months ago, but I'm a nobody. I don't have a big audience. But he mentions challenging the Russian blockade of the Black Sea. We know how Russia continues to threaten to stop the grain deliveries, the grain shipments. And almost nine months or a year ago, I said, you know, before the first grain deal was in place, I said, you know, why can't all the countries get together, create a joint fleet, and say, we're going to go into the Black Sea, and we're going to escort some ships out. It's not an act of war. We are not attacking anyone. So it's just this, this is just a crazy idea by Stan. It was a stupid idea, probably. It was risky, which is why I'm not running any country. I'm just throwing out ideas. But after I said that, I remember this well because it was a big deal for me. 
two weeks later, an admiral threw that out as a possible idea. And then, lo and behold, the grain deal happened. Probably Russia realized it was about to happen. And I can't. I apologize, I can't remember who the admiral was, but I, I just remember posting a lot on social media, holy cow, Stan threw an idea out, and like two weeks later, <laughs> it's being talked about in the halls of Washington. Not that they heard my comment, I'm not suggesting that, but it, it was a big moment for little Stan. Let me just say that. But I do bring this up because it hasn't really been talked about in a long time. And Max Boot did throw out challenging the Russian blockade of the Black Sea. As a reminder, I think it was a couple of months ago. You guys' memory might be a little better than me. If I had time, I would have researched this. But I'm just kind of spitballing right now. But you remember how Russia damaged one of our drones in the air, Reaper drone, if I recall correctly. And at that point the Biden administration kind of pushed back a little bit and they said, oh, we're still going to keep up our surveillance. But honestly, we kind of took a step back. But since then, the grain deal has kind of been on again, off again. The Russians have kind of been throwing their weight around, but the Ukrainians have been increasingly hurting Russia's naval fleet. They don't really have much of a fleet there anymore. Most of their ships, actually about all of them, are inside ports because they can't be defended. But I'm just mentioning, just as a bookmark, that Max Boot mentioned President Biden needs to not be worried about provoking Putin and that maybe he threw you out as an idea challenging the Russian blockade of the Black Sea. So it's in a political column. We'll see if anything comes out of that. But put that, put that, uh, put a pin in that because I'm just telling you, sometimes you'll see things kind of put out in columns. And then they start to become talking, they begin to, they become things that um, there's more discussion about, and then eventually they become policy. That's how these things work in D.C. I've seen it happen a lot. I need to throw in my short commercial, but after this short break, four things you really need to hear about. First, we're going to cover a couple of things regarding China. We're going to share some sad news about the Marine Corps, and then finally... Before we get to the motivation and wisdom section, I'm going to share a hot spot you probably haven't heard about that involves ISIS doubling its territory. And for now, it probably doesn't matter, won't make the news, but it kind of reminds me of a place called Afghanistan, which really didn't matter either until ISIS built up enough of its, although back then it was Al-Qaeda, but a similar terrorist group build up enough infrastructure to launch attacks from there. So I'm going to mention that place, which has barely made the news. I think you'll be interested in that as well. And then, like I said, we'll get to the motivation and wisdom section. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to and would like to help support the show, you can do so by signing up as a monthly paying subscriber for $5 per month. You can help us sustain, grow, and improve the show. Again, you can help support the show for only $5 per month. Come and go as you wish. You can find all the details on my Substack page. That's stanormitchell.substack.com. Again, stanormitchell.substack.com. Or just find it in the episode notes. Thanks so much, guys. The first story I wanted to share regarding China is from about a, almost 10 days ago. From The Washington Post had this long piece about China and an interaction, or a number of interactions it had, 
with the small country of Fiji. Now, I know most people aren't even really aware of where Fiji is. It's somewhat nearish Australia, but it's quite a ways away from there. But they had a signed deal with China for some trade and some police cooperation. And China being China pulls what I'd call a China. And so the background of it is, so there was this little known agreement between China and Fiji. And China decides that something's going on down there that they need to investigate. So initially, four Chinese detectives show up in the middle of 2017 as part of an inquiry, is what they said. And instead of asking local officials to help carry out this investigation of what they said were Chinese nationals that were suspected of running internet scams from the South Pacific Island of Fiji, they just went and done it. And so the Washington Post interviews these police officers who are in Fiji. And of course, now the country is beginning to increasingly grow against China because China sends in some police and they just literally just do everything with almost no regard to local authorities, no regard to local law. Just weeks after these initial four police officers land, the article says scores of Chinese police officers arrived. So I'm not sure how many, but I would take scores to mean dozens. So dozens of Chinese additional police officers arrive, and they literally just arrest 77 people, many of them young women, no trial, no nothing, marched in handcuffs and hoods across the tarmac to a local airport, and then they were flown to China. There was no extradition hearing, no proper documentation. They did not coordinate with the local authorities in Fiji. They didn't even involve Interpol. They literally just, they quote this senior former police officer who says, quote, they just came in and did what they wanted. And so this article has been getting some attention because up to that point, most people in Fiji didn't even know that there was a, you know, a security partnership with China. But China overplayed its hand, literally goes down there, does this investigation, arrest a lot of people, throw them on a plane, just take them off. And so there's a lawyer in Fiji, a prominent one, who said, quote, we didn't even know there was an agreement. And the next thing we knew, there were knocks on people's door doors and there were Chinese people in full uniform arresting people. It was unheard of. It's almost like we were invaded and so this small agreement, the article then goes in the background. It was signed back in 2011. It was six pages. It was just a memorandum of understanding that Fiji would have some police officers train in China, and China would have a few police officers do the opposite, go down to Fiji and train for a little bit. And it would just kind of be this small police agreement that would kind of be a blueprint for the two to grow their security presence. Obviously, that was a long time ago, 2011, and then a decade later, China has completely overplayed its hand. The prime minister there in Fiji, the entire island is obviously up in arms over this, but it, was, it has had wide repercussions because, I mean, can you imagine if any country just 
showed up in America and literally was knocking on doors in uniform. You know, even, I'm trying to think of even, like, an ally, like if they were British troops or French. We'll say French or German. You don't know, you know, you, you know they're allies, but they speak a different language. And these guys in uniforms are, like, knocking on doors and interrogating people. And next thing you know, they're putting people in cuffs. And next thing you know, like, people are getting flown away. I mean, can you imagine... I, I I can't even honestly in America we're so we're so used to having you know wide oceans to help defend us and not having to deal with things such as that not being bullied like small islands like Fiji, but I can't imagine the uproar after that. But of course there's been uproar, and this has helped other countries in Asia. I feel like I say this a lot on the podcast about how it isn't just the U.S. who's trying to contain China. There are lots of countries that have just seen China's human rights record. They've seen, even on an example like this, where their police will go in and just arrest people. There's no trials. There's no anything. There's just, you see people putting cuffs in a hood, and they disappear. And you don't even know, are these people going to reappear? Where were they sent? Was, was you know f- Were families notified? Is there any legal representation? Is there any chance of appeal? Is there even going to be a court of, of any type of court procedure happen? Any type of judicial anything? No one knows. And so I just wanted to share that story because I think I've seen the same thing start happening in Hong Kong as China began to really get its claws into Hong Kong and they get people arrested, they start putting local leaders in that are pro-China, and they, they almost just begin to dominate areas. But the difference is, is that Fiji's almost, I think it was said, 4,000 miles away, or I'm sorry, 5,600 miles away from China. 5,600 miles away. They have no military anywhere near there, and they still had the gumption and the just insane belief that they could do it, that they could just fly in a few dozen police officers and arrest 70-something people. Just go do it, because they can, because they're China, because they can just bully people. So I always, I'm obviously very pro-America, and I know that America's not perfect, but when people talk about America not being perfect, I always just think, like, like, who are we comparing America to? Is it China? Is it Russia? Is it Saudi Arabia that just sentenced a guy to death because he put up some tweets? He had 10 followers. They literally just sentenced a guy to death. Saudi Arabia obviously butchered a guy a few years ago. I mean, like, who who are we comparing the United States to? So I, I always want us to be careful when we are... You know, we do have to be vigilant against government overreach. There's a reason that America is one of the greatest countries in the world. We don't tolerate, you know, bad things happening without people getting very frustrated and upset in America, if not, you know, marching in protest and voting people out. We just don't tolerate. We've fought very hard to keep strong human rights in America. And so I just wanted to mention that story because that story about Fiji just really... I feel like I say it every week, but we just have to realize that China is China is not. You can't compare America and China when it comes to human rights and and how they will operate if they are not contained. Because this is how they operate 
with a country, like I said, 5,000 plus miles away with just a few police. They just arrest people and put people in hoods and fly them away. That, that's how they do it. So if you don't think that what they're going to do to Taiwan and some of the countries near them, Vietnam, all these countries that are in their sphere of influence, if you don't think that China has plans for those places, you're not paying enough attention. And certainly the countries around China are paying attention, and that's why they're all banding together, because China is a very large bully, and they do not think or operate like most Western countries do. And it's just something we have to be very aware of, because if we are not aware, and if we do not build alliances, build up our deterrence, and help them make the right decisions, it's not going to be a pretty sight. Anyway, that was some great reporting in the Washington Post. I know most of you don't have that subscription. I'll put a gift link in the source notes so you can read it. It's basically like a magazine article, so it's several thousand words, but it's really just in-depth great reporting. And the headline is, China's Global Leap, China Hoped Fiji Would Be a Template for the Pacific. Its plan backfired. And then there's a subhead. Uh, Fijians are increasingly souring on China, an example of how Beijing can overreach as it attempts to build its global influence. So, good article. I'll put the GIF link in the source notes so you guys have access to that. The second China story I wanted to share, or China-related story, involves Japan, South Korea, and the United States. You guys probably heard a week or so ago about a big agreement that was signed involving Japan, South Korea, and the United States, and I'll talk about that in one second. But historically, Japan and South Korea have not gotten along, and I'm talking all the way well past Korean War, well, all the way up until 2000, 2010, there's been a lot of Japan and South Korea kind of really dislike each other. I'll share a link to an article that goes into some of it pretty well. It's written by an analyst in Asia that goes way into the history. But the short of it is, Japanese people think Koreans are inferior and untrustworthy. That's that's the reality. That's It's straight up racism. And you can read this article or dozens of others, and you can read Japanese political figures who have said it. But in the past, obviously Japan, as part of its imperial expansion back in the 1900s, invaded Korea. They used Korean women as comfort women. They were trying to partly, literally, make the Korean people more like Japanese. I mean, it's really just almost gutter stuff to even read some of this stuff. But, clearly, if you're from South Korea, you're not exactly big fans of the country that invaded you less than 100 years ago and did horrific things to hundreds of thousands of civilians. And so there has been a lot of disunity. Now, before this recent agreement... The United States had a an alliance and a treaty with Japan, and we had one. We had bilateral one between us and Japan. We had one between us and South Korea. But we have never been able to, even though we wanted to, get Japan and South Korea on the same page. There's just way too much bloodshed, way too much ugly history, 
Japan even tried to rewrite its history books in the early 2000s because they didn't want to really, you know, talk too much about the truth of what had happened. That led to additional protests in South Korea. So there's just been a lot. But with North Korea firing missiles, threatening the South Koreans, with China increasing its desire to expand its reach, the United States was finally able to get Japan and South Korea to agree to a trilateral between all three of us alliance so that we could share communications, train together, and begin working to better halt the Chinese expansion in the Indo-Pacific. So it was a big deal for the United States. You, you can find lots of links about the article. I'll throw in an article if you want to study your research or, or you know, hone up a little bit on the analysis of why Japan and South Korea had so so many decades of tension and distrust. It's a great article to read. It's an analysis and commentary piece, but pretty good article. I'll put that link in the source notes, but the the main point is that we have now signed a trilateral agreement. Let me share one thing from that that I think is worth sharing. The agreement will do three things. They will create an annual multi-domain military exercise between all three countries. They will speed up information sharing anytime North Korea launches a missile or does some type of cyber activity. So they're going to have an increased ballistic missile defense cooperation. And then finally, the agreement commits all three to swiftly consult with each other in response threats to any of the countries from whatever source that occurs. So there will be a hotline to share information and coordinate responses whenever there's a crisis in the region or that affects any of the three countries. And then as part of the statements released, the three committed to stand up for international law, freedom of national navigation, and a peaceful resolution of disputes in the South China Sea. So Pretty big deal, and again, this would have never have happened had China not posed the threat that it increasingly poses. Because like I said, we're talking about a century of distrust and animosity between South Korea and Japan. Really, just, if you get a few moments to read that article, I learned things reading it that I didn't even know, in fact, that it's really remarkable just how much the two countries disliked each other, feared each other, dis, you know, just no respect between either of them. And they've used, their politicians have often used or fed the public mistrust to get elected. So these fears have been stoked up. The fires have been, you know, gas has been poured on them and the fuel's just been added to make both countries just dislike each other. So this is, this is a big step in Hopefully, it's something that will help contain China, which is obviously one of the major parts or major goals of that trilateral agreement. I mentioned that I had some uh, sad news that I needed to share. And unfortunately, since the last podcast, there was a aircraft crash in Australia, 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 
apologies, can't talk sometimes, but three Marines unfortunately died in that accident, and I wanted to honor them by naming them as they have now been named, but uh, the first one was Corporal Spencer Collert, the second one was Captain Eleanor LeBeau, and then finally Major Tobin Lewis. They were three of the 23 Marines on board. There were 17 treated for minor injuries. There's one still in critical condition, two hurt pretty bad, but they are stable. So the crash is being under investigation, but I've talked about in previous podcasts that even in peacetime, training is dangerous. My battalion lost a a Marine in a, basically a, a, stream slash river crossing in peacetime on a Sunday. There was no reason to expect anything quite that bad to happen, but when you train for war, you often fly aircraft without lights on at night. You often cross very dangerous streams that are flowing very fast and at the very limits of what is safely allowed in peacetime. And unfortunately, you know, the, the price of freedom isn't free, even in peacetime. So I wanted to honor those three Marines. I've got a link to the story. It's just, it's really just sad. I also want to mention, because I saw some folks on Twitter talking about how dangerous the Osprey is as an aircraft. So that is a public perception that I once held. I remember I got out of the reserves at least in 2003 the Osprey was increasingly being used in the fleet marine forces and I never wanted to fly on one because back then everyone thought they were super dangerous I pretty much held that view since then because I had never really researched it until about a year ago and at that time there was a crash and it was a minor one but I was like man these things I feel like they crash all the time so I did lots of research on it I posted that back then and the Aircraft is far safer than most people give it credit for. I became a believer again that it's absolutely as safe as any typical helicopter, but it's just being used a lot, and it has lots of advantages over helicopters. It's got more speed because it flies. It's a tilt-rotor aircraft, so it has further distance. It flies like a normal plane. If the rotors are moved forward into forward momentum. It expands the range of what Marines can operate and, you know, they don't use it as a helo a whole lot, but I have done the research. I will probably throw that link in actually, and I'll make a note to do that if you want to look it up yourself because you're probably like, man, I I hear about it. It just seems to get a lot of more attention versus when the army loses a Blackhawk or some other helicopter they just the osprey is the newer more exciting thing even though it's now like 20 years old but it just for whatever reason certain aircraft get a certain perception and the facts are not in support of that perception but it's like the politician that makes a big blunder it just doesn't really matter at that point once perception really sticks it kind of becomes reality but It is very sad that we lost these Marines, but I know that all of them, you know, raised their right hand and made an oath, and they they did this to 
help protect our freedom and we need to remember them and honor their sacrifice. But a really sad story for sure. Now the final story I want to mention on our news portion before we get into the motivation and wisdom involves a place you haven't heard in the news. Involves a country in Africa. It's actually a large country in Africa. I think it's one of the top six or seventh largest country in Africa, but most people don't know it, and most people will never visit or hear much of it. And it probably, in some ways, doesn't matter, but at the same time, it kind of does. That country is Mali. It's right next to, actually, the uh, country of the north to is Algeria. If you are looking at a map of Africa, it is in the northern west part, so not in the bottom part of South Africa, not on the upper right part or eastern part of like Egypt area. It's on the other side, basically, in the west, northern west part of it. But it is a very large country, and I did look it up. It's the eighth largest country in Africa. It's got almost 500,000 square miles, population 22 million, so big country, lots of people. But like I said, it rarely makes the news. Only reason I'm bringing this up is there's been a UN mission there with multiple countries to try to keep ISIS and some other terrorist groups under control. Unfortunately, two things have happened. The first is Mali's government has changed and their new leadership wants the UN mission to end. And so there's less than six months to get all these troops out. That's the first thing. The second thing is that even with the UN there... ISIS and other terrorist groups have almost doubled the territory that they control in just the last year. So, I'm just I'm just sharing this because ISIS is still a declared enemy of the US and the West. They have very fundamentalist, dangerous ideas involving how they view Islam and the Quran. They will attack westerners. They were the ones who obviously created a caliphate in Syria and part of Iraq. We mostly got rid of them there, although we still are running missions. I've covered just a mission a couple or so weeks ago in the area of Syria. So we're continuing to run missions there. I do not believe we're running missions, at least not publicly, against any of these ISIS groups in Mali. But it's kind of complicated because... The government in Mali has also invited in Wagner and, you know, Prigozhin just recently passed after Putin decided that his time was up. And they did confirm that. I should I should have noted that, but at least Russia's government did. So allegedly he is definitely dead from that plane crash. But Mali has invited in Wagner and Russian mercenary groups. And so you've got kind of a double whammy. You've got Russian expansion of influence and control in an African country, and you've also got ISIS, which has doubled its territory. Now, again, none of this probably matters in the short term. I just know that we have a very educated, sophisticated audience here. And when a year or two from now something happens and this territory in Mali is used to launch an attack against France or Italy or maybe the U.S. At some point, if they continue to expand and grow their power 
and they launch an attack from there, even though Mali has almost no strategic interest currently in the U.S. It will be like Somalia, or it will be like one of a dozen other places that I could name if I thought about it for just a moment, where U.S. forces have had to go in, same as we did in Afghanistan. No one really cared about Afghanistan when when Al-Qaeda was operating out of there until September 11th. And we didn't even really care that Al-Qaeda was operating out of Afghanistan when they attacked the USS Cole, when they bombed two different embassies in Africa. We had plenty of warning that Al-Qaeda was growing stronger and operating out of Afghanistan, but Afghanistan was a a very impoverished, backward, hard-to-reach country that was, you know, a third-world country, and no U.S. administration wanted to deal with them until they finally did an attack large enough that we could not ignore them anymore. And so we went after Al-Qaeda, and we obviously went after the Taliban, and then we did mission creep and decided we would create a, a democracy in a place that has one of the highest rates of illiteracy in the world. So that didn't work out too well. I know we all have a lot of sore feelings over that and how that ended. But I'm just mentioning Molly so that you can, in the back of your mind, remember that at some point, if (laughs) at some point it's probably likely that we will have to go deal with a festering wound there that is growing worse. It's really sad for their people. There's a UN report about how even soldiers in the military for Mali have large large number of reported cases of rape of women. The military there is not a whole lot better than ISIS, and that's part of how ISIS always expands is if you look at how the Taliban came to power in Afghanistan you study the history there Afghanistan was just absolutely racked with you know a decade of civil war from corrupt warlords and so the Taliban began originally as a religious organization that decided they had had enough and so these religious warriors decided we needed Islamic law there and that we needed peace and so they sold this idea that probably initially it certainly initially had lots of local support because even though they were kind of a backward and very fundamentalist religion at least initially if you read the history the religious leaders in the Taliban brought law and order And they actually were very judicial and pretty fair initially, which is how they had so much public support. Now, any time, any, you know, the old saying, absolute power just obviously leads to corruption. So it didn't stay that way for very long, but it did initially. And so I'm sure a lot of this support for ISIS in Mali is because of the corruption and how just the human rights abuses of the government of of Mali and also the mercenary groups operating with it, which are also lots of alleged and reported war crimes from them as well. So an ugly situation that probably will have no 
U.S. intervention in the short term, and we'll probably have no pretty answer. There's no easy answer, and no one's going to deal with it. So it's it's just really sad for the 20 million people who live there. But just make that mental note that Mali is probably going to be on the list of places that in maybe two to five years or so, maybe ten, we'll probably be reading about U.S. troops going to Mali. And hopefully you're still listening to me then. I'm probably going to still be doing this. I certainly plan to. And we'll both say, you remember back in 2023 when Stan talked about this. All right, so that wraps up the news. Let's get to the best part of the show. This is the motivation and wisdom section. I share these each week because I strongly believe we could all benefit from a pep talk and from some deep insight and wisdom. And, you know, all of this is stuff that is lacking in our hurried, very shallow world. So I hope these uh, make a little bit of an impact. So here's the first one. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Again, you are what you do, not what you say you'll, you'll do. So if you're a writer and you're not writing, then, you know, maybe you're not a writer. So we got to do these things that we say we are. Next one. You're meant to be something great. Don't settle for anything less. We all have those doubts, don't we? They just kind of creep in. They come late at night or early in the morning. That you're nothing, that you can't make a difference. But we all can. So again, the quote is, you're meant to be something great. Don't settle for anything less. Less. I'm sorry, I can't talk. Here's the next one. The best fighter is never angry. Again, the best fighter is never angry. So we got to control our emotions. Next one. This is a really good one. Small wins are still wins. Celebrate them all. I know for myself, sometimes it's like, man, you're just not making the progress you want, but you got to remember, you're piling these little bricks up. You're, you're making progress. So small wins are still wins. Celebrate them all. Next one. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And that is a quote from the great Winston Churchill. Again, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. If you've gotten knocked down, get back up. You've got this. Next one. The first and best victory is to conquer self. That's from Plato. Again, the quote is, The first and best victory is to conquer self. That's why we do this every week. We're trying to improve ourselves. Next one. Never stop being a good person because of bad people. Again, never stop being a good person because of bad people. Don't let this world change who you are. You're beautiful. Keep your little light on. Next one. You don't become what you want. You become what you believe. That is deep. We all want things and we don't want to work for them. But you got to believe and work. So you don't become what you want. You become what you believe. Next one. Intelligent people aren't offended by the truth. That's a deep one. Intelligent people aren't offended by the truth. It reminds me of, I believe it was Jocko Willink that once said that 
the first step to discipline and improvement and self, you know, self-improvement is looking in a mirror and being honest, being honest about, you know, your weight or where you are in life or where you are financially or how you are as a husband or wife or parent. And if you're intelligent, you are not offended by the truth. You'll start to work on it. Next one. Your actions today will determine where you will be tomorrow. That's a good one. Your actions today will determine where you will be tomorrow. Next one. It's a quote from a retired Sergeant Major Anthony Spadero. And the quote was, continue to validate your credentials. That one is so deep that I just chew on it all the time. Continue to validate your credentials. We all know someone who was something great in the past. The high school all-star athlete, or maybe even in college, the decorated vet, the academic genius. And we just see them let themselves go, or they settle below their potential. And they kind of just live on their past success, and they're super defensive about it. We don't want to be that way. Don't be the one who did that back then. You want to be doing this right now. So we want people to talk about your current accomplishments, not just your past. So continue to validate your credentials. Let's do a couple from the Bible. And this first one is deep. It's from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. I'm going to read it one more time. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. That one's just so deep. For me, I think all of us are so impatient and we try to do things with our own strength, with our own means sometimes. I know I do. I try so hard to grow the podcast, to reach out to more people with my books, to do this. Oh, if I do this on social media, I need to try this. And sometimes I can get almost frantic in my efforts to do what I think I'm supposed to do. And I think sometimes we try to do too much ourselves, do we not? Again, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Sometimes it's just nice to think about the fact that we're not totally in control. And maybe we just need to not try to do everything ourselves. I'm not saying be lazy. I'm not saying do nothing. But I'm also saying maybe we don't have to be so frantic. The second one is from Psalms 36, verse 9. With you, you being God, with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So again, with you, you being God, with God is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Let's not let... um the world, you know, darken our light too much, right? I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a good one to end with. 
And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. So many men and women have sacrificed, fought, and died to keep this country together the past 240 years. Please work daily to unite our country again. The vast majority of Americans are decent, loving, great people. Also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. For those who are listening for the first time, let me say a bit more about myself and the podcast. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior infantry Marine who dropped the sword and picked up the pen. After joining the Marine Corps at the age of 17 to serve four years in the infantry, I exited military service, earned a degree, and spent 10-plus years in the news business, initially as a reporter, but then going on to start a weekly newspaper in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013. But once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 12 books, and while it's true I'm still writing, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do think that much can be gained from discussing these issues and creating a community where we intelligently discuss the troubles confronting us and where we work to come closer together and respect each other's views with more patience and kindness. A house divided cannot stand, and I strongly believe that more unites us than divides us. I will not remain silent while politicians, seeking their own personal gain, try to throw gas on a dangerous fire, doing their best to tear apart this country so that they can advance to a higher office. We face great challenges as a country, but America has stood together for more than 240 years, and it's only together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. So let's get a little better informed, and let's work to get a little more united as a people. Thank you for being patient and allowing me to share that monologue. I think it's important people hear what I'm about, and I think it's also important my regular listeners hear this message enough that it sinks in, that it affects what they believe, that it affects how they act. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today, beliefs such as kindness, patience, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. Thanks again for your patience and for listening. I know it's not the sort of fast-paced, really hip, Twitter-friendly, TikTok-cool message that fits most podcasts that go viral, but maybe we've got a few too many podcasts that are like that. Maybe we need to go back to something deeper, to something firmer and more solid, to something we can build a foundation from, and that's what I'm offering. Now, we're almost to the end of the show, and I'd be a fool not to mention my books. I write fast-paced books, and when I say fast-paced, I mean like really fast-paced books. And if you read the reviews, people say they are gripping, compelling, and full of twists and turns. I've written a dozen books to date, and I've been fortunate to have sold more than 70,000 copies. And guys, these are independently published. There isn't some big company pushing these. These are straight-up word-of-mouth sales. So if you're one of those who've bought a book or more than one book, 
thank you so much. I really appreciate that. If you're one of those folks who've just shared links or told others about me, it's a great way to support the show. All of my books can be found on Amazon, and they are primarily about military thrillers. I've got a series about a Marine Corps sniper. I've got some police detective ones, but you can find all of them on Amazon just by searching my name, Stan R. Mitchell. Make sure you include the R. You will find them no problem. You will see they all have averages of more than four, uh, four plus stars and thousands of reviews on them. So they're great gifts. They're also great for yourself if you're interested in them. So thanks so much, guys, for sticking it out with me. I hope you got something from the show, and I look forward to seeing you guys here, same time, same place, next Thursday.